0: We're going to continue on the theme of angels and demons and kind of the spirit world and how it intersects with ours, and we'll end up going into the Nephilim, and that's always been, since I was in high school, one of my favorite topics. It would probably surprise you to realize that more than half the books in Scripture actually deal in one way or another with the Nephilim. That probably is surprising, Uh, but you'll see it's a pretty amazing thing to watch it weave through as, as we look at things. So today we're going to look at worship. And uh, look at it a couple different ways. So we can raise our hands, sing, and praise. We can have intimate time alone with God. So a question would be, what is worship? And when you really think about it, the highest form of worship is obedience. And it's simple to prove. Raising your hands, singing a new song, bowing down, meditating. Whatever it is you're trying to do is all a command. So all forms of worship fit under the title of Obedience. So that is actually the best form of worship, is obedience. It's not just simply singing. So the goal of mine, or one of my goals, is to make us think. And uh, I, was, I was talking to my nephew driving in here today of how so many times growing up you hear stuff and you get bored uh, with Scripture. And so I think, why, why is it boring? The Bible should be exceedingly interesting, and it should be interesting because it makes us think and pushes our thinking. And changes us. And because it challenges us, then that challenges what we actually believe, but it's all doing it through thinking. So here's your objectives. We're gonna look at purpose, uh, that God has a purpose with everything He does, He's a goal oriented God. We're going to look at worship, and then the last two, what does it mean when God is jealous, and then what about us? We probably won't cover those today, we'll probably punt those to afterwards, and the first two are longer, the last two are quick, but don't worry, if we don't get through this whole thing, uh, we may not. So we're going to start up here looking at purpose, and especially some of this, we talked with our men on the mountain retreat, especially we as men, uh, but all of us as human beings crave and seek glory, and even... The man after God's own heart did that as well. So I like to ask this question in reading the Bible. Why? If you And you know when your kids will say, why? 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 And you get so irritated at it. We should not get irritated at it. We should remember that that is placed there by God. The quest to answer why is placed there by God. And when we rebuke our child, what we're doing is driving them away from God. If you answer why, I won't go into this, but even the realm of mathematics, why, 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 even mathematics is dependent on an eternal set external to itself. That should be the best science that's self-evident. Even math requires something infinitely external to itself. That's amazing. Why always ends in an infinite self-existent creator, God. So we should ask why. Why do we crave glory? And it's very simple. We're made in the image of God. Now we're tarnished. In that image, and we don't pursue it the right way, but even Jesus sought glory. So there's nothing wrong with seeking that. It's just how do we seek it, and is it glory from man or glory from God? So I'm also doing a little different thing. So I I got some good feedback, because I know I cover a lot of material and go fast. And one of those is, yeah, don't even mess with a handout. So I experimented with that at the men's breakfast, and I'd like to get guys' feedback. I'm changing it. If you notice, there is no blank. You don't need to take any notes. You can. You're welcome to. But some people like to get verses. The verses I list are not exhaustive. I'm not even going to say all of them. So it's it's a partial thing. Gives you something to look at. You can watch the numbers. So there's a number that's going to correlate to a number. But you don't need to fill a darn thing out because you may want to just look at the screen and look at verses and how we're going to look at things to think so you don't break your train of thought. So if you're Really good at notes, fine, but you don't have to take a darn note and just do what you want. And I'm curious for feedback on that when we're done. So we are created for language. And this comes from Dartmouth Medical School. It's secular research. They do not accept Yahweh. They do not accept God. We're not accountable to anybody. That's secular humanism. They do not say created. They say hardwired. Okay, the human being is hardwired for language. How did the hardwiring get there by random chance? Random chance can't hardwire anything. We're hardwired. Every culture group, every human on the planet is hardwired for language. If we use that language within a greater set called relationship. This is, again, Dartmouth Medical School. We are hardwired as human beings for Relationship. We are relational beings. Very easy to demonstrate. You shouldn't need to go to medical school to figure that out. Language. Language exists within relationship. What does the relationship exist for? Their words, not mine. We are hardwired for spirituality. That gives context and meaning to relationships. And we fellowship using language. So that's what they're saying. They did not say worship. I added this one. We are hardwired for worship as well. What is worship? Worship connects us to the spirit world. That's what worship is, that's what it does. We're hardwired for it. Of course, we're hardwired by the Creator, He's put that all in us. We are hardwired to worship. The question is what are we going to worship? So we can worship the infinite triune God who exists in all of these forms, the Alpha and the Omega, the very ability to think with logic, the Logos. He is this amazing being, but there's also fallen beings. There's a whole realm of beings, all sorts of descriptors. You could call them angels and demons, but there's multiple categories and hierarchies, multiple terms of these beings Really, they'll fit with Elohim, little g gods. And I'll probably say little g Elohim a few times. And so What is that? You'll see in a minute, but that an Elohim is a spirit being. That is not simply God. God is a spirit being, but he is not the only one. The Bible will teach multiple others. But there's no way we would actually worship a human, is there? Well, maybe we would and celebrate them. And then there's guys like Alexander the Great who claimed deity. Now, he was not a lunatic in the Greek religious system. He never claimed to be the creator God. He claimed to have earned apotheosis or deification to join the pantheon of gods, and he was granted divine honors by the League of Corinth legally. He understood what it was. They understood what it was. We call him a madman. He never claimed to be the infinite God. He claimed to earn deification, and that's the Greek system. Here we'll see another one. So do you really want to deny the reality that we are hardwired to worship something? The question is, what will that be? And yes, that includes humans. We'll do ancestor and human worship as well. you may say, well, I'm too educated for that. I'm going to go to Harvard University, get the best education money could buy. So you're going to go there and learn secular humanism. It's all within the rubric of Psalm 14.1. There is no God. Always learning and never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. Cannot accept the truth because the whole premise is there is no God. And so this is where you end up. And you might laugh. Did you realize that's exactly what we're taught in the Bible? You say to a tree, you are my father. To a stone, you gave me birth. For they have turned their back to me, says Yahweh, and not their face. But in the time of their trouble, they will say, arise and save us. Did you know... If you accept evolution, 4.6 billion years ago, what was there? There was a rock, a stone. There was no water. There was no oxygen. With no oxygen, there can be no water. That's H2O, hydrogen and oxygen. No one really knows, according to evolution, how the water got here, but somehow it did. And they have all sorts of theories, but it's not clear at all. But where did it come from? It came from a stone. So what do you say in secular humanism? There is no creator. The stone, the rock, you are my father. Do you realize that's what the Bible told us thousands of years ago? There's nothing new under the sun. But where are your gods, little g, Elohim? Your gods whom you made for yourself. Let them arise if they can save you in the time of your trouble. This is God rebuking Israel. So Jeremiah is right before the Babylonian captivity. For according to the number of your cities are your gods, O Judah. So the north Israel is always taken. Now we're down to just the south, which is Judah. Elohim. Gods. That is not restricted to the creator. That means a spirit being, a deity, a spirit. As many as cities you have, that's how many. all sorts of gods. Therefore, this is uh, Paul in the New Testament, Acts 17. What you Greeks worship in ignorance, they had the altar of the unknown God. This I proclaim to you, the God, the Elohim. Now this is now in Greek, it's not in the Old Testament Hebrew. Who made the world and all things in it since he is Lord. Of heaven and earth. What you are worshiping, what you are obeying, what you are following is not the Creator. That's what he's saying. You notice Peter talks to Jews and he just builds on what they understood from the Old Testament and the Creator, and here is the Messiah. He is the Creator. And he gets thousands because they already had the worldview, the foundation to handle it. Paul goes to the Greeks. He cannot build on a foundation. They do not accept Yahweh, the creator of heavens and earth. There is no coming Messiah. So he has to scrap their system and rebuild starting from the creator. He only gets a handful reminiscent of our day now where people don't accept the foundation. So about a month ago, I did a class where we talked about Israel as the bride of Christ. We're going to just piggyback on that a little bit as we go through watching Israel and her relationship with God and how that will then correlate with us because Israel, of course, became a harlot. And if you remember in there, especially in the book of uh, Ezekiel, she's even paying. So the dude usually pays the prostitute, but she's paying people to come to her. That's how God is rebuking her. You're even worse than a prostitute. So we're going to go back to Exodus 32. This is going to be Moses, the Ten Commandments, and the Golden Calf episode. When the people saw that Moses delayed, remember 40 days up on the mountain getting the Ten Commandments. When the people saw that he delayed to come down out of the mount, the people gathered themselves together unto Aaron and said to Aaron, Up, make us gods which shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man that brought us up out of that, notice they're focusing on the man that brought us up instead of the angel of the Lord, Yahweh incarnate, Jesus Christ. They are focusing on the man just like Mike's sermon. Don't focus on something here. Focus on that. But they're distracted. and they, Well, Moses isn't here. We need a new guy. We don't know what became of him. Make us gods. What is God's word saying? Make us Elohim. Make us Elohim. They're not worshipping the thing, the idol. They're worshipping what imbibes and enters into it and channels us to the spirit world. It's not the stupid piece of silver or whatever. They didn't believe that. They weren't stupid. But they were much smarter than us. They knew the connection into the spirit world. And he, Aaron, received them, so he got gold trinkets from them and fashioned it with a graving tool after he had made a molten calf. Calf, cow, bull, that's Baal. That goes back to Egypt and Apis. There's all sorts of connections. And in this course, we'll kind of go through things like bulls and lions and dragons and unicorns. Seriously, yeah, that's an interesting one in Scripture, depending on which translation you have. And how they ping, not to this world, but it's using this world to look into that one. That's what's going on. Uh, let these be thy gods. So what they do, they make this bull, this calf, and that goes back to where they had their idolatry and adultery back in Egypt. They rose up early on the morrow and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So they're sacrificing. That's obedience. You notice how all these other lesser little g Elohim, they will do. They'll copy what God does. They just try to lop Him off the top. So there's offerings to this guy, to the bowl, to Baal. There's multiple other deities you can put in with that. And the people sat down to eat and drink. We know what that means. That means they have a feast. And then they're going to rise up and play. So what does that mean? Of course, there's a lot of sexual activity with here. And the innuendo is strong there in the Old Testament Hebrew. But it's not mandatory and definite. So we have to interpret that realize all of this is in conjunction to worship all of these things even the feasting is a form of worship of an elohim in this case embodied in the bowl but they know that's not real it's what it represents they've just replaced yahweh with baal multiple other gods you could put how do we interpret scripture that's a very interesting question So you could use they rose up to play. Yes, there's sexual innuendo, but how do you know? Let's use the Bible to interpret the Bible. All scriptures inspired by God. All is a big word, so it must interweave. And that's what we're going to do now with Paul. And realize with Corinthians, to Corinthianize was all about sexual immorality. Very strong. We'll see weaving the gods, the Elohim, never go anywhere. They're called different names by different cultures. And are you that surprised to look at a hypersexuality in our culture? It's the same deities. Neither be ye idolaters. So he's talking, this is now Paul, New Testament, but it's in a reference back to the to the golden calf instance. As were some of them, the Israelites, at the time of the calf. As it is written, there's your clue, there's a quote to the Old Testament. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose. Now we know exactly what he was quoting. I just told you in Exodus 32. So sitting down to eat and drink is a feast in the act of worship to the false Elohim. But they also rose up to play. How does Paul give a commentary by the Holy Spirit to exactly what that is? Well, they're idolaters. They're following a false god. And what do they do? They committed fornication. It cannot be more clear what they did on the mountain. Let us not commit fornication. What is fornication? That is any sexual activity outside the covenant marriage. Any sexual activity outside the covenant marriage is labeled fornication or porneia. You know where pornography comes from. As some of them committed, some of the ancient Israelites, and fell in one day, 23,000. God killed 23,000. And then you can follow Balaam and all this stuff going through the Old Testament. We're not going to take take time to do that. But realize worship is action. It's not simply bowing. It's not simply singing. Notice those are actions. But any worship is an action that we do. Fornication is an act of worship. I never thought of it that way. That's what the Bible teaches you. Whoa. We should think about this. Now we look at the prophet Hosea. So we're moving around, but you'll see a common theme going through this. So Hosea was a prophet. He was told to go marry the prostitute, Gomer. So he marries her. She was already a prostitute. And you see all sorts of guys make comments. The whole thing is mimicking Israel. Israel married God there at Mount Sinai. They were in Egypt before that and were already committing idolatry, exactly like Hosea who was told to go marry a lady who's already a prostitute. Just mimicking Israel with God. So that's the book of Hosea, and it spans all of history, even going to the end of the tribulation. So in the middle of this, in Hosea 3, the Lord said to me, Go show your love to your wife again. Notice we're in chapter 3. Early on in the book, go marry a woman who's already in harlotry, and she's a prostitute. He marries her, but now she's loved by another man. She's already left him, she's got another man. Go love her again. ...as a wife, even though she's an adulteress. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites. There's the whole point. This is acting out of what God is putting up with with you. Though they turn to other God... Oh, there it is. To other Elohim. And they love the sacred raisin cake. So you probably don't have the recall... ...but we talked about these stupid raisin cakes last time. And we ended there. I don't really like eating raisins... Well, we're going to look at worship now because that's, you notice this was weaving through a bunch of Old Testament Paul and the New Testament coming back to what they're doing. What is the worship and realize that's an act of obedience to a deity a deity. Notice I didn't specify which one. Here it happens to be Ishtar, the queen of heaven. Hypersexuality. Notice she's on top of lions with power. There's owls. There's wisdom. And you'll see her, Asherah, Astart. These same goddesses will go through time and Paul is dealing with the same ones in Corinthians. They all have geographic areas and different geographic areas and peoples may call them different names. And you'll find yourself on goose chases as you're trying to figure out exactly which one is which, the Bible confirms this reality. So when God says, little g, Elohim, gods are not real, he is not saying compared to us, he is saying compared to me, they are nothing. But if he's talking about us, they are significant. It depends on which viewpoint God is presenting them. So let's understand this a little bit. What is that? Like the Colosseum in Rome, but this is the close, it was the Parthenon. So the Parthenon, now we, we are not Hebrews. So we don't understand Old Testament Hebrew culture very well. We're Greeks. Where did Rome come from? They came from the Greeks. Where did we come from? Rome. Why do all our things have the eagle and the pillars? Oh, from that. It's exactly the same eagle comes from Rome. So we understand Greek This is the Parthenon. This is the building. That's the temple. There's the frieze. All sorts of stuff here. They can reconstruct what that was. The temple, the building, is the Parthenon. The Pantheon, similar word, but the Pantheon is the gods. There's the pantheon of Greek gods. And yes, there's Zeus, and we'll just cut to the chase. Zeus is Satan. He is the serpent. On the other end of it, he was a serpent. The whole point of Greek mythology is the transformation of the serpent to a glorified man and the removal of authority from Yahweh, the sons of Noah, into the Zeus Greek system. That's a brief synopsis to make you think a little bit. We're not going to tend to spend a whole lot of time on Greek mythology, but that's what it is. But notice there's a pantheon of gods. It's a question. We always ask why, how, is that reality? So I think reality comes from scripture, not from reading a government uh, paper on something, but from the Bible. Does the Bible teach a pantheon of gods? I love debates. Yes, it does. At least she'll answer. So yes, the Bible teaches a pantheon of gods. Let's see how. The Lord, ah, Yahweh. Notice Satan will never call him Yahweh. He will never call him Lord. He will call him God. But he'll never call him Lord. Oh. Yahweh. When you see Yahweh, you know that is the high God. That is the creator. The Lord Yahweh is a great God. He is an Elohim. Now in this particular case, it is El. And even Superman, Kal-El, stems from this. The predator series, they have El, they have Ill, they have gods. That is high, mighty one. El is like a shortened form of Elohim. There's Elion. There's multiple words in there for God. This goes back to the Ugaritic area of where Jerusalem and, and that whole Middle East was. But that's the high God. But notice it is Yahweh. When you see Yahweh, the Lord, all caps, small, that is always God. That is always the creator God. When you see God, you don't know who that is. The context will tell you, here's one to understand that. Look at context. The Lord, Yahweh, is a great God and a great king above all what? Little g, Elohim. So a lot of your Bibles will put the gods with a little g, but it's the same word, Elohim. Elohim, Elohim. So what is Yahweh? He is a great God, and he is a king, a melech. A king is simply a dude who rules. That could be down on earth. It could be up in the heavens. Context will tell you. What is the context for Yahweh as a great king? He is a great king above all other Elohim. You see how that works? Yes, the Bible teaches a pantheon of gods. Here they are. There's a pantheon, multiple of them. What is an Elohim? It is simply a spirit being. The Bible is crystal clear. We might call them angels. We might call them demons. They might have a specific name, like Michael or Gabriel or Hallel or Lucifer or Azazel. They might have a specific name. All of those are in Scripture. So we don't want to go outside of Scripture, because then we get confused. But all of those are legitimate things created by Yahweh. So we see there are three realms. This is critical to understand scripture because so many times we think God is talking about down here when he's talking about that realm up here. And we missed the point. So number one is the infinite, the eternal realm. What is the only thing in that is the infinite, eternal that cannot even be encompassed. That is Yahweh. That is the Creator God who exists in three forms Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's our triune God. No, there is no such thing as polytheism as far as a Creator God. There is only one in three parts. We can't understand it. Notice He is from everlasting to everlasting, He alone is eternal. We are not eternal beings, we're immortal beings. Eternal goes all the way that way, all the way this way. Never had an origin, never encompassed, no definition, cannot be bounded. That is eternal. One thing, the triune creator God alone exists in that realm. How about this realm? We're going to specifically take Halal, which would be the Hebrew word for Lucifer. That's the Latin, before he fell, and now he falls. What does God say about him? On the day you were created, is he a created being? Yes, he is a created being. People confuse and stumble over this all the time. Satan cannot self-exist. He cannot be eternal because then he would be infinite. He is finite. He had a beginning. Notice you could be immortal. Have a start and go forever. But you didn't go both ways. Only Yahweh. Fits that definition, and you'll see that refrain throughout Scripture. And then we have the third realm. That's what we have here, this earth, us walking around on it. A lot of Scripture, we think God is addressing this when he is addressing that. And if you lose the context, you miss the point. This is kind of our focus here today. It's learning more about realm number two. You could just call it Elohim. All sorts of spirit deities in there. And realize that is a pantheon of gods. What does Satan do? He teaches truth a lot. He has the entire scriptures memorized. I guarantee you. He will teach the truth and just miss one. He'll just take something out. He teaches truth. He just simply lopped Yahweh off his throne. Pretend there is no Yahweh. Now we have a pantheon. (laughs) By golly, I'm the chief of the pantheon. That would be Satan. See how he taught a lie, right? He taught the truth in that there is a pantheon of gods that is over this realm. Realm number two rules over realm number three. What Satan does is simply lops Yahweh off his throne and pretends he is the chief of the pantheon. He tells the truth, just not quite the whole truth. You see that? And then we get back to Ishtar, the queen of heaven. So we're going to see her now in Jeremiah. Context, Jeremiah is right before the Babylonian captivity. So, We had David, then we had Solomon, and then the kingdom split, and the north went captivity to Assyria. Now the only one left is the Jews. There's a difference between being Judean and being an Israelite. This is now Judean. This is the Jews. They're left, Jews, Judah. See that connection? Israel, 12. Judah is the Jews. Do not pray for this people, nor offer any plea. This is God telling Jeremiah, don't pray for them, offer a plea or petition for them. Do not plead with me. I will not listen to you. That should make us think. If I'm walking around as a living human being, as long as I still have breath, can I call out to God? Answer is no. You'll find at least ten examples of that. Here's an easy one. We got the flood. Noah, ark, who closed the door? God. Rain starts falling, takes several days to raise the boat. You are alive on the earth, still breathing. Can you enter and be saved? No. Your window was sovereignly closed. You and I do not control when the window is open and when the window is closed. This window is now closed for the Jerusalem. You will not be healed. Sons of Eli, same thing. Do not pray for them. I will not forgive them. They're walking dead. Oh, I didn't realize that. I thought I could know. If you're breathing and thinking about it, better call out now. You never know when God shuts the door. Here's one more example. There's well over 10 of these. One example. Do not pray for Jerusalem specifically. They will not. So there's things that are sovereignly decreed by God. And then there's other things where there's wiggle room for our free will. And those sometimes intersect, sometimes they don't. This is now decreed. It is done. You're going to Babylon. Hasn't happened yet, but cannot be altered. Do not even pray to change it because I will ignore that prayer. Fascinating. I will not listen to you. We should ask why. That's always the question to ask. Why? If God says, I won't heal, we ought to know why that is. The children gather wood, the fathers light the fire, the women knead the dough and make, there it is, the cake, sometimes raisin cakes, the same thing. We're talking about Ishtar here, false goddess, to offer to this, oh, there she is, the queen of heaven. They pour out drink offerings to other gods, little g Elohim, to arouse my anger. Talking specifically, notice how these Elohim will have specific names as well. This is Ishtar, the queen of heaven. So now, what is the context? The kingdom that started, so Samuel starts the kingdom. It goes to Saul, removed from him, goes to David. Then it splits. North is gone. The kingdom is Jerusalem. And so now Jerusalem is going to go where? To Babylon. So Daniel starts his prophecy there in Babylon. The kingdom started back with Samuel. This is not the start of the kingdom. This is the start of the rule of the Gentiles over the kingdom. So we're not talking about, uh, you know, the Hittites. uh Or other groups that had bigger kingdoms. Mongolians. You notice they're not in here. They had a bigger kingdom than Alexander the Great. But it didn't control Israel. Specifically Jerusalem. That's the kingdom that's going through all of this. And then at the end with the tribulation. So here's statements of an almighty God that we're going to go through in this course. One is going to be the bloodline. God saw. These have no wiggle room. Free will cannot change this. This is a statement by the Almighty God. Here's going to be a bloodline. What's the result? This dude called the Messiah. Mike preached about that this morning. And that's going to go through Abraham. So it starts with the seed of the woman in the garden to Eve. Feminine singular, by the way. And if you notice in your genealogies today, it says Mary by whom Jesus was born. That's feminine singular in the Greek. So that has nothing to do with the man. Don't say a virgin birth. Say a virgin conception. Helps you comprehend it a lot better. So the bloodline is promised, and that is unalterable. It will go to Christ, but it's going to go through Abraham. Now on this side, this is just a little uh, teaser. We're going to get into the Nephilim, not today. There's five groups of Nephilim. Notice they're all surrounding the promised land. God promises the bloodline, and he promises the land. What are the Nephilim doing? That is a brilliant attack by Satan to destroy both promises of God. The bloodline and the land. That's what it's about. And then to understand, you can't understand the Old Testament until you understand the Nephilim. And then you understand it's all the movement, not in, we think, realm three. This is a realm two issue. And it's the eradication of the Nephilim. They follow the way of Cain, but so does Israel. Shakes our fist up at God at Yahweh. Woe to them, they have gone the way of Cain. So here we see why, because we asked the question, why would God not forgive Jerusalem? I thought that was his chosen people. Well, they were, but it's going to be 2,500 years later till he solves this. Why not will he not heal them? Now, they say we will not, notice we're at the end of Jeremiah, or, you know, towards deeper into the book. We, the Israelites, this is women speaking here. We will not listen to the message you have spoken to us. We realize it's from Yahweh. This is defiant. We realize Yahweh, the ultimate, the infinite one, is speaking, but we reject that. We will not follow. We will certainly do everything we said we would. Instead of following Yahweh, we will, notice the goal orientation there, we will burn incense to the queen of heaven, pour out drink offerings to her, to Ishtar, just as we and our ancestors are kings. It goes back to Solomon. And our officials did in the towns of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem. This is the south, realize. This is Judah. This is not the north and Israel. They're not talking about the bad kings in the north. This goes back to Solomon and his wives and what they did. At that time, we had plenty of food, and we were well off and suffered no harm. So these people are crediting their prosperity to the wrong god. In this case, goddess. We will not listen, even though we recognize it's Yahweh. Yahweh. But ever since we've stopped burning incense to the queen of heaven and pouring out drink offerings to her, we have had nothing and been perishing by sword and famine. So they're blind. They can't connect the dots. You notice how people wonder why does God let bad things happen? It's so we wake up and realize we're following the wrong Elohim. It's exactly what's going on here. Oh, if your circumstances are good, soft times will create soft men. We need the hard ground. Realize we need to grow. But when it's soft, we become soft, and then we move away from God. So your blessings, you misappropriated that to Ishtar, the queen of heaven. I am now going to change your circumstances, and you're going to blame me for that instead of realizing it's connected to what you do. And, so they add something to their phrase here. So, we want to follow the Queen of Heaven. And, fascinating here, when we burned incense to the Queen of Heaven, notice that's an act of worship, to the Queen of Heaven and poured out drink offerings, and they're going to have feasts and everything. Did we make her, these are the raisin cakes again, look at the multiple elements to the worship, and worshipped her, worshiped her and poured out drink offerings to her. Did we do it without our men? This is the women speaking, Without our men. And I've read some commentaries where they try to say, yeah, that goes back to the Old Testament law where if a woman gave a vow, the man could come in and contradict it. The father. That's not what this is talking about at all. How do you worship Ishtar? Sexual immorality. That's what they're saying. It's not just us women. They had male cult prostitutes the females would go to. They have female cult prostitutes the men go to. And yes, you can get transgendered if you want to. All of that was worship of the queen of heaven. This has nothing to do with the father rebuking his wife or his daughter on authority. What they're saying is, we were all involved in the sexual promiscuity worshiping Ishtar. That's what's being, and we know th- I get uncomfortable. In realm two, we talk about Elohim. Realm three down here, we talk about sexual issues, and we get uncomfortable, and we can't see what God is saying. And we get uncomfortable with it. Biggest mistake you can do with your kids is cloud them from the truth of God. So now God divorces Israel. We talked about that one last time. So we question, how do you worship a deity? One of those things is faithfulness. Are we faithful? Notice in the worship of Yahweh, it's not simply singing and raising hands. It's your actions. If Israel is faithful to Yahweh, they maintain the land. When Israel is not faithful to Yahweh, they lose the land. A crystal clear connection. The blessing of Yahweh is the land. You have to be faithful to have the land. If you're not faithful, you'll lose the land. So what is the end result of this divorce? For the Israelites live many days without a king or prince. Is there a king of Israel right now? Ah, so that's still ongoing. Without sacrifice, sacred stones, ephod, or household gods, many days. When was the last king? That was right at the Babylonian captivity. There has never been a king, and in fact, the line of the kings was cursed. Oh, that's a whole other story of how you get to the Messiah. But the line of the kings was cursed, so ever since then, after their captivity, they'd come back. Like when Alexander the Great was walking around in 300 BC, they were ruled by what? A high priest. When Jesus gets crucified, there's King Herod. He was Idumean, He was not of the line of Judah, of David. He was an illegitimate king. So he's called a king, but he was put there by the Jews. But he had no bloodline that went to David. Illegitimate. He was an Edomite. Not a legitimate king. So don't think King Herod was a legitimate king. And you notice it's the high priests who have the power in Jerusalem. Afterward, the Israelites will return. Afterward, afterward, after they have a punishment. We know that's been 2,500 years so far. There's going to be punishment for Israel many days without a king or priest. After that, the Israelites will return and seek the Lord their God. Oh, and there's an interesting character, David. Remember Hosea and Jeremiah are written after David's dead? But they all talk about him. And afterwards... After, this is after the tribulation. The Lord, Yahweh, will be their Elohim. And David, their Melech, their king. So that's an earthly king. But it's a resurrected David. They, the Israelites, will come trembling to Yahweh again. But that is the result. And that's not here yet. And it's obvious. Israel is not clamoring to come back to God. The revolters have gone deep into depravity. This is Hosea, kind of the middle of the book. But... They have gone deep, so they have rejected Yahweh. We know what Yahweh is saying, but we reject it, and we're committing harlotry, pornography, pornea, fornication, an act of worshiping false gods, which includes the act of sexual promiscuity. That is what we're doing because we're rejecting Yahweh, so they're going deep into this depravity, but we have a sovereign action by God. And what is that? I will chastise them. I will bring punishment on them. Because they're going this way, I will bring punishment on them. Their deeds will not allow them to return to their God back then, for a spirit of harlotry is within them. They do not know the Lord. Notice how it's connected. The physical act of harlotry is connected to realm two by God. They will go with their flocks and herds to seek the Lord, but they will not find him. This is in the middle of Hosea. They're going to look for God, like in Jeremiah. Do not pray for them. I will not heal. I will not restore. That's for a period of time. God sovereignly opens and closes those doors and windows. God has withdrawn from them. Pray all you want. I will ignore you. That's what this is. The middle of Hosea. By the end, they'll come back. God has withdrawn He goes on, I, God, will go away and return to my place, the real Zion, not the earthly one, up in realm one, until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face in their affliction. That includes going through all the kingdoms, the times of the Gentiles, and goes through the tribulation. As a result of their affliction, they will earnestly seek me. That's the purpose of all of this, to bring them back. That's the purpose, really, of the tribulation. There's more to it, but that's a big central piece. So how about us? When I say, what does this really have to do with me? Well, we in Romans 12, this is Paul speaking now, New Testament, we're to present our bodies as a living and holy sacrifice. So now we're talking about sacrifices here, and what we're doing is an act of worship. Sacrifice. And so... I always love to find ways to put little movie clips in here and if you if you got a little kid this we're going to show some stuff that'll be a little disturbing this is alien versus predator it mimics biblical theology with Yahweh lopped off top that's what this is so, when you get the Xenovar on your face, you're in trouble is the bottom line here. So, that's the aliens. What do they do? They impregnate a human so they can hatch more aliens. We'll see what the predator is. There's a predator. So, this is an Elohim. Now, I'm going within the world of the predator. But the predator would be an Elohim. And then when you know, watch the movies, it, is, it mimics exactly scripture. They come in and out of being visible. Most of the times they're not seen. They might be seen, but normally they're not seen. So they go in and out. They have spacecraft. They're high technology. They are above us. He is the Elohim. He is the little G God. What is their purpose? Why do they exist? They are a warrior clan, so they want to hunt you. If I killed a possum and held it up, you wouldn't think I was much. But if I took down an Alaskan brown bear with a knife, you would know I'm a pretty good hunter. So they take in all-known the universe, the toughest creature to hunt, and that is the alien. This is a predator. What you saw was a part of the alien, then of course comes out of the chest and does all that stuff. That is the toughest physical being. It's like a dragon. Oh. Interesting. Like a dragon in scripture. But that is the hardest thing to hunt. They cannot beat it with bare hands. They have to use their knowledge, their hunting prowess, and technology. And that's why they are the Elohim. And of course, they're worshipped by people who build ziggurats, connecting them to the stars because they came from the stars. So you see exactly where aliens and all this stuff kind of comes from. It's little G God Elohim. Very real. But there's a sovereign one above it all. They try to pretend he doesn't exist. So when you look back at this, they are not chained down, the human beings who gave their bodies as a living sacrifice to pacify the Elohim. They're pacifying the predator by letting the aliens come in, come out their chest, and give more aliens for the predators to hunt. That's why they exist. But it's only the chosen, and they willingly give their life to pacify the Elohim. Whoa, that is exceedingly biblical. Willingly give the life to pacify the Elohim. Therefore, says Paul in Romans New Testament, now that you understand the predator, therefore I urge you, brethren. I mean, Come on, he never did talk about the predator. I'm trying to make a little joke and you're asleep. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living and holy, there it is, sacrifice, a sacrifice, are we willing to do? But notice, therefore, big word. That is connecting, we're in Romans 12, 1. Therefore, that means we go back. Why do we give our life as a living sacrifice? We have to understand Romans 9, 10, and 11 to put the therefore in Romans 12 in context. What is Paul saying? That's why we understand the predator. And that's why I understand sacrifice and why we understand appeasing a deity. Because Romans 9, 10, 11 is very clear. There's a dude named Yahweh. He's the only eternal being, realm one. He is the creator. He is sovereign. That's 9, 10, 11. He sovereignly marries Israel, divorces Israel, has things with Israel, kicks them out, lets us in. But don't, we don't replace Israel. We join them and he will bring them back. That are all sovereign movements of the sovereign God, the true Yahweh, the only infinite being that exists. That's Romans 9, 10, and 11. Therefore, because of that, offer yourself as sacrifices. We're going to just go now to Romans 11. This summarizes Romans 9, 10, and 11. I, Paul, do not want you, Israelites, the people I'm writing to here, Brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, that he's really talking to Gentiles now, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation. A partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of Gentiles comes in. Sovereign act of God, whenever it's full, it'll come in. So all Israel will be saved. Realize there's a difference between Judah and Israel. That's technical, gets beyond us here. And so that you have to understand that to know what this is really going to mean. But all Israel will be saved, just as is written... The Deliverer will come from Zion. Key phrase, the Deliverer will come from Zion. Who's that? That is the Messiah. He will remove... Wait, I thought he came. This is after... Oh, this is the second coming. Okay, at the end of the tribulation. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So a partial hardening. So yes, uh, Israelite can still come to God now, but as a whole they're not doing that. Until, that means a passage of time. So God has sovereign, that's a sovereign act, just like he did with them back in uh, Jeremiah. A sovereign act, they will be hardened. Some of them can come, but most won't until, until what? Until he, God, sovereignly removes ungodliness from them. He initiates and they respond. Wow. When, time frame. So until until, uh, when, when I'm going to take away their sin. When, that's going to be when the deliverer comes when is that going to? When? Oh, it is written. Whenever you see something like that, we should go read the entire context of what was quoted to understand. So, when is this going to happen? Isaiah fifty-nine and Isaiah sixty, whole chapters are all about the millennial kingdom at the end of the tribulation. So let's look at Isaiah fifty-nine twenty. Oh, you notice this? What he quoted? It will have this hardening will happen until a redeemer will come to Zion. Oh, now I see how it fits full circle. So we're thinking, what is worship? When you're worshiping some of those alien dudes, you might give yourself up to the alien. But worship connects us to realm two, to the Elohim. Maybe realm one in Yahweh. But it can go to either way. Are we going to realm one in Yahweh? Or do we worship something we might see, but is empowered by a little g Elohim? So worship connects us. That's what it is. How? How does worship connect us to an Elohim? Which Elohim are you talking about? I could pick this one. Okay, if you want to worship him and connect with him, you're going to give your life to be impregnated by the alien. If you want to worship Moloch, you're going to chuck your kid in the fire or have an abortion. If you want to worship Ishtar, oh, we've got all sorts of sexual promiscuity. Male, female, trans, we can do the whole deal. Which Elohim are you talking about worshiping and connecting to? Or are we talking about the creator of the Elohim, Yahweh. Do we want to worship him? Oh. If we do, this gets interesting. Because this is love. Not that we love God. But he loved us. He, Notice this is... Romans 9, 10, 11, 12, also first, this is sovereign actions of God that he loved us, He sent his son to be the propitiation. What is propitiation? That can mean to atone or cover. It can mean to reconcile. but the biggest best way to understand it and what it means here is to appease the deity, to fully satisfy full, payment and full, you appease the Elohim. You satisfy him. Only Jesus can do that, so realize Yahweh sets the rules. There is sin. How do we appease Yahweh? There is no realm two, there is no realm three possible thing to appease Yahweh. It must be realm one, taking divine action and entering in. Only that can appease Yahweh. It takes Yahweh to appease Yahweh. Now, we cannot propitiate. We cannot please him. We cannot pay it off. So, therefore, what should I do? That's the therefore. We had to take some detours to understand it. Therefore, present your bodies as living holy sacrifice. That is your spiritual act of worship. Spiritual, the Greek word there is logiko. Some translations will say you're reasonable. It is only logical. You cannot propitiate. You cannot pay it. You cannot do it. Kind of like this dude, hey, you can push all you want, but the baby ain't coming at you, it's coming at your wife. You can't do it. You sit there and she'll give you a job and you hold her hand or something, but you're helpless. All of us men know how helpless we are in the birthing suite, right? She's doing all the work. Just like our salvation, he did all the work. Yahweh, Christ himself, came and pacified, paid the price to Yahweh. It takes Yahweh to pacify Yahweh because it has to be an infinite bill. We cannot do it. Therefore, what's the only logical thing? Now we give him our lives because we can't pacify him. We can't pay the bill. Christ did it. Do not be conformed to this world. Do not be chasing false little g-god Elohims. That's what all the world does. All the world is under the control of other little g Elohims. So what we'll do is close there. Uh, My goal is to make us think. And when you go, simply, I can promise you, if you read Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel, and then you read the Psalms, and then you read Hosea, if you read the Old Testament, you read Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers, and you pay attention and ask why, and you see the word God or gods, and look in the Hebrew... You will be amazed. In the Psalms, especially the 80s through the 90s, you read those babies, you will be amazed God ain't talking to us. He's addressing realm two. And we get confused. And we get sloppy. And we try to put round holes and square pegs because we were thinking it was realm three when he was talking to realm two and we don't have a place to put our peg. And then we don't understand that God really does teach a pantheon of gods. He does not teach polytheism. He teaches there's a bunch of stuff in realm too. We're not going to go through what they are, but there's a bunch of stuff there. It's real. And it controls us. Compared to him, it's nothing. Compared to us, it's super powerful. But compared to him, it is nothing. It is eh, because of the fact that he is infinite. He cre- He's not the chairman of the board. He created the beings. So I'm just hopefully to get us to think a little bit. We're off until after uh, Christmas, and then we're going to get back in and uh, hopefully challenge our thinking and uh, make the Bible more interesting as we read it. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you uh, for this day. Thank you that you are infinite. You are eternal. There's nothing that compares to you. and The Bible has all sorts of real beings, uh, but Lord, you control it all. Thank you that you paid the price for our salvation. In Jesus' name, amen. One quick thing I'm gonna, I'll come back to, I forgot to mention, when I showed you the picture of Ishtar, the queen of heaven, and we talked about gender. The sons of God, this class too, is all male. How do you get a female in there? Realize doctrines of demons is deceit. Don't let the demons, don't let the Elohim, the fallen, tell you what they are. Read the Bible for what they are. So God will sometimes call them by how they're known so we know what it is, but they can be female or transgendered, but that's not the way they were created. That's deception after their fall. That'll come in later as we tie things together. Have a great day.